0: Hello and welcome to Unpublished TV. I'm Ed Hand. UT TV is the newest production from Unpublished Media. This weekly live panel discussion completes our set of four internet properties created to help you influence and impact public policy decision-making in Canada. They're unpublishedottawa.com, the Unpublished Cafe podcast, which I also host and unpublished.vote. Now, each week, we'll introduce a new topic through the Unpublished Cafe podcast and unpublished.vote, where you will find the podcast and background information from a variety of sources to help further inform before you cast your vote and email your MP to tell them why you think what you do. Then every Monday night at 8 p.m. Eastern, we'll reconvene here on UTV to examine how the issues evolved and how you, our audience, reacted to our poll question. We want your input as well. You can send us comments or questions through Facebook or YouTube. Now, has there been an industry more impacted by the COVID pandemic than the airline industry? Tens of thousands of jobs slashed as Canadians stayed home instead of traveling. When the lockdown began, demand for air travel dropped in some cases by 90%. Now, slowly, the industry is moving forward, but it will look different to anyone who hasn't been in an airport in the last few months. Only staff and passengers are allowed inside now. Distancing measures are in place, as are temperature checks and face masks. Our unpublished vote question was, would you feel comfortable taking a flight in Canada right now? And joining us to talk about that uh, are three guests, uh, Professor Carl Moore. Is an expert on the airline industry and uh, associate professor at the Desotel Faculty of Management at McGill University. Gabor Lukacs is the president and founder of Air Passenger Rights. And Anthony Anthony Nareko is the president and CEO of the Canadian Business Aviation Association. And I thank all three of you for uh, joining us. Uh, I'll just uh, tell you our numbers about uh, our question, which was, do you feel comfortable flying in Canada today? And 67.9% said no, just over 31% said yes. And Gabor, we'll start with you first. Does that surprise you or no?
1: It doesn't surprise me at all. There was actually a survey by Ledger that found that 72% of Canadians are not comfortable overall. Um, So actually, probably uh, it's a very low number compared to what was measured just a couple of days ago.
0: Carl, are you surprised by those numbers?
2: No, not really. Um, I flew last week, and so I had a personal experience that I can share with you later on. Mm -hmm. There was really relatively empty Montreal and Toronto airports. Uh, I grew up in Toronto, lived in Montreal now for 20 years. Um, They were not quite ghost towns, but not far from it. So absolutely numbers are down. But on the other hand, I've uh, read reports of people being jammed together and the middle seat being sold. I watched something on the Wall Street Journal where one of their reporters went from London to Madrid an absolutely chock-a-block plane. So I'm not surprised that Canadians would be concerned given what we've gone through in the last couple of months of lockdown.
0: What about you, Anthony? You're in the industry. Are you surprised that uh, more than two-thirds feel that way?
3: Well, look, I think everything that we've become accustomed to with commercial aviation has changed from the airport experience, the check-in procedure, the airlines, the waiting, the boarding, et cetera. And, you know, from our perspective, from business aviation, when we think about our primary mission is safe, reliable and efficient transportation. When you think of safety now, you get the ability to control who you're sitting with, which is an obvious uh, concern on the commercial flights. In terms of reliability, think to what our nation's carriers have had, to, uh, what actions they've undertaken to limit service into more rural areas of the country. Last, efficiency. You've got now the choice with the tool that you select to effectively price the solution that you need. So the time cost benefit returns that often our sector looks at, uh, or even just a traveling public, as costs go up because the airlines need to cover these these increased costs, it's going to be passed on. So it's certainly not a surprise. But I think there is there is a path, and I'm, I'm looking forward to the discussion about the way forward, what we can do to responsibly travel again.
0: Well, you've written a letter to the Minister of Transport and and calling on the business aviation industry to lead the economic recovery. How how do you see that happening?
3: Well, I think if you look at, you know, a favorite expression of mine is you can lead, you can follow, or you can get out of the way. And I think primarily uh, the, the, the issue to contend with first is our provincial and federal leaders need to come together to understand that We can't travel about in our own country. We talked about controlling the spread. When you look now at some of the restrictions, for instance, if you live in Ontario, you want to go to, uh, let's say, Nova Scotia. The Atlantic bubble is in effect, 14-day quarantine. If you live in Ontario and you want to go to Manitoba, well, only if you live in the northwest corner of Ontario are you able to travel to Manitoba without quarantine. So the first recognition is, if we have, as a country have come together to fight this uh, epidemic, and now that we start to see the success, I mean, as we know, uh, in Ontario, uh, we're now in stage three, the measures that the Quebec government has undertaken. As all of this has changed, we, ne- we need to recognize that domestic is the opportunity. Second, I think, is the EU, uh, the international components. When you look at uh, where some of the countries in the EU with respect to uh, reciprocity and the wins that they've had with COVID and how they're trying to recognize Canadian travelers, I think that's an opportunity. Uh, and certainly we're going to talk about with, with all of our international measures, it's all about test, test, test. And I think there's a fantastic discussion to be had. A favorite, uh, he's an assistant prophet, uh, Harvard in epidemiology, but, uh, Michael Mina, he talks about two things. One, lowering the costs of testing. Really, it's sort of like, I guess the best way to describe it would be like those paper tests if you go into a pool or a jacuzzi, mm-hmm. doing a COVID test. Uh, to do it basically every day, as opposed to these PCR tests that we do now, which include lab times, high costs, etc. So for us, the solution certainly has to revolve around using responsible testing, making it more affordable, deploying the technology that's available, so that we can jumpstart and keep Canadian business moving. Uh, and so that's really, in a nutshell, the approach that we've taken.
0: Yeah, you know, Carl, uh, Anthony brings up uh, an interesting point that you know you've got obviously aviation. This is a big country. It's federal. And then we've got our 10 provinces all spread out and all with different rules. So you've got an industry that's got to jump through all these hoops. And, and at the same time, they are still looking for help from the government. They, they kind of have nowhere to go right now, do they? It's brutal.
2: It is the worst it's been in aviation history. I talked to Tony Tyler, uh, the head of Cathay Pacific. And then IATA uh, last week for my radio show. And it just, Tony was just saying it just, he's never seen anything remotely like this. They're down 95%. It's like a ghost town the last few weeks when I was out at Montreal, Trudeau Airport Saturday morning. So they're in deep troubles in industry. And we see the EU has provided help, the US, uh, some of the airlines uh, have got help from Asia and so on. So the question is, what is the help that the Canadian government Ottawa should give to the airline industry? And, they uh, Air, Cancel, Air Canada rather, canceled some flights to smaller towns, which uh, I lived in Regina for a while when I worked for IBM. That really hurts. I think part of that was put a little bit of political pressure through the uh, mayors and through the premiers on Ottawa to get to it and provide some support for this industry. Now, as Canada, we're the second largest country in the world. We're spread out uh, very close to the U.S. Mm-hmm. border. We can't take the train easily from Montreal to Vancouver. It just goes on forever or driving. So we need it from a viewpoint of business. We need it from a viewpoint of families. We also need it from a viewpoint of tourism as a huge industry. So this is a huge economic hit for Canada. On the other hand, of course, we've got to care about safety. And it's interesting. I was reading a report in the FT that one of the analysts pointed out that the airlines are now competing on safety, which has never happened before. (laughs) <laughs> because you go above all, get the people there safely. Part of it was our pilots and our flight attendants are on the plane; like we have mm. skin in the game. Yeah, this is a personal thing of our Air Canada, Western, whoever family. So get there safely. That is a bit in play now, and that, that is something that makes us nervous. But a vaccine will solve it.
0: Mm.
2: A business jets are great if you can afford that sort of thing. Um, and it's how do we get to that where the economics would work out a bit. Not to be profitable, but merely to survive and safety. There's enormous
0: tension between those two right now. I feel. You know, we've got a question coming in on Facebook Live, and is there a potential for Canadian carriers to merge here? What do you think, Carl?
2: No, no, not the bigger pl- like We only have
0: two: Air three. Canada and
2: yeah. WestJet Porter, mm-hmm. which is pretty small and flies Q400s out of Toronto Island Airport, essentially. So it's really, if you if they merge, it's called a monopoly largely, and that will not work in Canada. Now, we have U.S. airlines flying when they're allowed into Canada. We have BA coming over, Lufthansa, which is part of, Uni- you know, a, a partner of Air Canada, but we can't have just one airline of any substantial size. We need competition in this country. Uh, remember when Air Canada, I don't know if you're old enough to remember this, was Air Canada combined with Canadian. Yep. And that caused that. some real problems. Mm-hmm. Um, we need at least two strong competitors Albeit we do have some competitors flying into the country. So I think them combining is a really dumb idea.
1: What yeah. about Air Transit? Hmm. You didn't what? mention Air Transit when the issue with merger with Air Canada. Yeah.
2: Well, the Air tra- the, the, I would assume they'll be part of Air Canada, but in one way, I think you're agreeing with me, oddly enough, Gabor, that it just makes it worse when those two combine.
1: Certainly, I, I have misgivings even about that merger, and I think the European regulator also. Not happy with it, although it seems that currently Air Canada is trying to look for an excuse not to go through with the merger because it not necessarily be economic for them now. Well,
2: well, the the M&A, why would you do that merger? The underlying reasons have certainly evolved, to put it kindly. Mm -hmm. And does it make sense anymore is a question that we have on the table, I think. But the airline industry is just so important to this country. We can't have a monopoly. And again, remember Air Canada was a long time ago owned by the government. Again, some people said, why, don't, why doesn't the government take it over? You go, again, a dumb idea because government's great at some things. Business is good at others. Yeah. But government running a business doesn't seem to work well. We learned that under Margaret Thatcher and various other people over over the time. They're great at different things. Let them do the thing they're good at.
1: But what about the German model? We have seen that Angela Merkel, who is far from being a socialist or a communist, still uh, agreed to Germany taking a minority position in Lufthansa in exchange for a bailout?
2: Well, a minority position is different than being owned by the government. Like Air Canada was a crown corporation way back when. So something our BA was owned by the government. And so there's things when they used to be part of the government. So some people have suggested that some kind of ownership position is a possibility. And I think limiting executive salaries, not doing uh, stock buybacks, uh, servicing small uh, cities, are some things I think the government should press. Air Canada and WestJet on,
1: but don't you think that the government has uh, effectively decided not to force airlines to provide passengers with refunds as a way of providing an implicit bailout at uh, the public expense? Add,
2: if I can answer, Gabor, directly. Sure, sure. So one is bailout is an emotional word, Gabor. You're an emotional guy, but that's a word which is uh, different. Well, it's different than economic help is less emotional than bailout, but. We'll leave that there, um, okay. and I agree that it's it's partly the airline's in such deep, profound trouble to refund just gets us deeper in the hole, and in some cases say, let's give them a couple of years and they can travel again, but yet, I have an elderly person who's not going to travel in a couple of years. So some of those cases are ones which I think they have more uh, of a leg to stand on, and Air Canada WestJet should help them, but it's something where they're just profound trouble laying off twenty thousand people. It's something we have to realize. These are unique, utterly different circumstances.
1: So, yeah. Carl, do you believe that just because I need food, I can go to my neighbor's house, take out something from their fridge and have it, or take their car? I mean, don't you feel that? that I hear that someone in actually- the kitchen.
2: <laughs> Gabor? I close the fridge. Yeah. So, <laughs> no, I- obviously not. But it's, so, there's a tension there, but I think that they're in such deep trouble that there's wiggle room within the act to allow the government to allow that there. But on the other hand, I agree that so there's you say some that, cases that rule where it's law top- doesn't
1: matter. Do you think rule of law doesn't matter? And do you think even, even if we – so there's one part, which is the question of rule of law. The law is, it's, it's provincial law, federal law, has always been that if you don't provide a service, you have to pay it back. That has been for the past 16 years of jurisprudence. It's set out in Ontario – Consumer Protection Act, Quebec Consumer Protection Act. In fact, the Quebec Legi- uh, uh, Legislative Assembly passed a motion calling the federal government to simply respect Quebec's laws in dealing with this matter. Now, do, do you think that those things we should just say because this, those are special times, the laws don't matter, and large corporations, they're too big to... to to fall. That's question number one. Question number two is, with this kind of attitude, do you think anybody is going to buy tickets when things are recovering, which I hope eventually they will recover, mm. and given that there are other airlines which are providing refunds, such as Side of the border, or the European airlines to some degree, how, how is it actually helping the, the, the industry? I'm quite struggling to see that from a purely industrial perspective. Forget about passengers, just the airline's own self-interest. If you treat consumers this way, if the first thing that people think when they say okay can is, oh, there's the company that stole the passenger's money, who is going to buy tickets? I, I
3: think, think it's MPD also has a comment. Well, I was just going to add that, you know, it's important to recognize, of course, that, sh- sure, we were talking about the commercial airline challenges, but if you think of the air industry, Carl, you've mentioned the importance of aviation and its, and its tied to travel and tourism, but think broadly about the entire industry. So think first to the airports, think first to our uh, air traffic control agencies, our, um, you know, look at Bombardier now, the only thing they make is business aircraft, CAE, Pratt & Whitney, the the number of companies and entities and Canadians that are supported across the breadth of the industry. So it's certainly important to think about how the average Canadian chooses to travel, which is by uh, commercial travel. Uh, But it's also important to recognize the devastation that uh, all of those ancillary players, those vital players, the role that they have and that now, with COVID, the impact that they're all undertaking, so it's it's quite dramatic. So it's it's true, Gabor. The the concerns of the flying uh, public need to be addressed, and, and and I think you you highlighted it the right way, which is to say it's a bit of a bailout of a different kind. Instead of paying taxpayer dollars, the, the government is doing what they're doing. But I think it's important to recognize there's a whole other pile here that needs to be addressed for the health of the aviation industry in Canada and its importance that it plays uh, across the country.
0: Okay, well, what what so needs the, to be addressed, are you Anthony? Hang on for a second, or let's let's get back to Anthony here for a second. What what does need needs to be addressed?
3: Well, I think if you look at let's say first uh, Nav Canada. Nav Canada is planning. Uh, they're the air traffic control agency that looks after not only just Canadian airspace, but basically the the, the bulk of the the north, the polar routes, and the Atlantic, getting across to Europe. And there are proposed fee increases that are being planned both for domestic and for um, uh, Atlantic travel. Now, they're trying to do a, a fair job, if you will, of, uh, of spreading this out over five years. But it's an additional burden placed on the airlines. These are costs. That will be passed on to the commercial traveler, like everything else that will come when commercial does everything, your baggage fees, your meals, all that's going to go up to account for the cost they've incurred. Uh, airports, I mean, look at the GTAA. Uh, they're laying off 500 people traffic when it's, it's, it's ludicrous to hear that traffic at an airport has fallen say 92, 95%. I mean, it's, you, you, you can't imagine. I mean, a a room Mm -hmm. of 100 people, 95 of them walk out. That's what's left. I mean, sometimes you got to you got to put it in that perspective. But uh, there is some devastation out there and we're not done. And, and certainly the, the conversation centers often around AC and WestJet. Uh, but there is a whole industry out there uh, of people that are hurting right now. And uh, we are not done.
1: So we are talking here still about a few tens of thousands of people, maybe 100,000 people, which is certainly there have to be some help provided to those individual workers. No, I'm, I'm the first person to, to admit it and to support it. But the question is, what about those between one and two million passengers who are currently owed refunds by that have not been paid and that those airlines are breaking the law in so doing? Does it, does it justify it from a um, commercial, from a legal, from a policy perspective to say that in some situations the laws actually don't apply without actually parliament passing a law without a court saying that they don't apply. So you see, for example, in the case of a, of a restructuring CCAA, there are proper procedures for renegotiating contracts for saying, okay, you owe this money, but actually this company is in trouble. They don't have to pay. There are proper procedures for it in democracy. Why are we not using those? Why are we not dealing with those matters? Which I, I agree with you, there are some very serious questions here, but why are we not doing them with the proper procedures, with the proper channels?
2: i'm not a lawyer so i can't answer (laughs) the legal side of that sure but i think see to me the bigger issue is what anthony's been talking about is how do we get people safely back on planes because if they're on planes they're flying in our canada west jet and Porter are starting to make money maybe there'd be some finances to help deal with your issue gabor so i think the bigger thing is how do we get people comfortably on the planes IAD and ICAO have talked to some leading medical experts at the Mayo Clinic, at the WHO, and so on. And there seems to be some sense of arguments that it's safe to be there because of the HEPA filters, because of the air, everybody wearing masks, as they did on my flights last week. The interesting part is they're doing this in various parts of the world, so we're starting to get data. So in theory, it's safe. But it's interesting, we're starting to get lots of data where we can look at, not a, you and I are not competent, but they're competent. People can look at it and say, how safe is it from a data viewpoint? And I think we've already been weeks into this where that's something which hopefully will come out soon and say, we've looked at the data and the risk is very small indeed.
1: Now, if so, far, so far, I'm sure you're aware of the MIT study that was published a couple of weeks ago. Yeah, what that concluded is that eliminating the physical distancing on board nearly doubles the risk of life. It doesn't mean that that uh, necessarily you're going to die if you get COVID nineteen. I think that has been has been some misunderstanding there. When you look at the risk of getting infected and dying as a result, it would still be a relatively low risk. So,
2: Deborah, would you like to be no flights and all the aircraft, all the airlines bankrupt? Is there paying off people? Like, is that what you're suggesting we adopt as a I'm, country?
1: I'm I'm suggesting that the rest of the ninety seven percent of the economy, which are not airlines, should not be put at risk. With possibly a second wave, in order to ensure that airlines remain viable, I don't think that airlines necessarily go bankrupt. Moreover, when you look at the actual infrastructure, mm-hmm. the pilots are there, the crew are there, the aircrafts are there. They're not going to go, they're not going to disappear. So, the people who may be hurting our shareholders. Primarily, they may be taking a haircut through some kind of CCAA process. And let's, you know, you're using big words. You're talking about bankruptcy, within reality what we could see is a restructuring process. And that I would, I would actually be the first person to argue that it's actually necessary to protect the airlines. Currently, the airlines are locked into long-term leases that were signed on the basis of profit levels and revenue levels from travel, which cannot be realized with the current level of travel in the, with the aircraft. So airlines are now locked in in contracts that are completely unrealistic. And a CCA process would be one way where a judge could say, this contract is very nice, but it wasn't made now. It was made when you could fly aircraft 12, 14, 16 hours a day. So I'm ordering that this country be modified as such, and the judge can approve it. That would be something, that would be a solution where, where actually the commercial players would take a reasonable amount of risk and, and consequences of the situation, not the traveling public who are not investors, not creditors,
3: but average consumers. I think it's important, you know, you take a page from the first principles thinking, focus on what is right versus who is right. And I think this is definitely part of a, a conversation that needs to happen, but if you go to the base, what is the problem we're trying to solve here? The problem with COVID is that because we don't have a robust testing regime, I don't hear anybody talking about group testing on aircraft. In other words, you, you either you scan a whole aircraft and you say, OK, everybody provides their test upon landing. Let's say with international flights, you know, our, our U.S. counterparts trade with the U.S. is so critical. We're not talking about testing. We still have the ban in place. Uh, you think of when I mentioned that Michael Mina, the idea of low cost daily testing you know, only in the fringes are the those PCR tests. You know, the nasal mm-hmm. swabs that everybody's uh, you know everybody sees the images of. Those are expensive and, and 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 take a long time to get a result. But you can do these paper tests. Uh, we can push that through. We can encourage. Uh, uh, and this is why Ed, you made the reference to to why we've uh, brought the business aviation realm to the front is because we are smaller. We're more unique. We don't have people gathering at a mm-hmm. terminal. Let's say our, our fixed based operators. Most people can walk from their parked lot parked vehicle straight to the aircraft. When they come into the FBO, if they're going to go through, it's at a, at a new level because of not only just the requirements, but because of the desire for that business to, to, to be at the higher standard. So when you go to that first principle, we need to solve this question of testing. Right now, if we can do a simple daily test, we do away with what's 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 the risk here? Right now, the risk is that we allow people to just travel around and we only test them after they feel symptoms. And so I think we need to push the government on the testing. And if they can't answer these questions effectively, this is why I even brought up what we said, lead, follow, or get out of the way. Let's push them to encourage this, this new wave of testing, because these will solve the, the challenges that you're bringing up. If we can bring people right. a sense of comfort, they'll return to flying. But it's sort of, you know, one of the challenges is sort of take from the right right pocket, put it in the left pocket. It's, it's, a, it's an assessment, a question that needs to be answered. Certainly the, those Canadians that haven't got that service uh, completed, either the airline needs to extend uh, whatever terms of flexibility they can afford or work with the government accordingly. But in the end, um, you know, every traveler is going to be unique. And, and either way we, if, if the ultimate end is the taxpayer funds the, the obligation to the airline, I don't know that that's ideal. So it's, it's the, nobody's winning I in this situation. So. That's yeah. for sure. Have you looked at, I don't know how small uh,
1: operations that are in your circle work. I can tell you that when you look at Air Canada's finances, they used to owe at some point two point six billion dollars with eight to ten billion dollars of liquidity, of un- unrestricted liquidity. They had more than enough money to issue refunds to passengers. It's not a case of an airline on the brink of bankruptcy. There's simply no truth to those kind of claims with respect to Air Canada or Air Transit, for that matter, that they will go bankrupt. I very much agree with you that testing is important, and actually in not only for airlines, but everywhere, the entire economy. Mm-hmm. You, know, you shouldn't be entering a university, a school, a hospital, a library without first being tested. I, we are turning on the same page. But even if there were testing tomorrow, there is another risk that you seem to just brush under the carpet, which is that passengers who book a flight and then if I is it so for whatever reason, don't seem to be getting back their hard-earned money. If you think that it's from left pocket, from, from right pocket, well, then perhaps your money, Anthony, would be way better in my pockets. Mm. you know? Mm. I, you know if, if, if you think that's a valid argument. I don't think it's a valid argument. It's a very simple question that taking someone else's property doesn't belong to you is called theft. That's, that's in a capitalism. We can have a socialist society. It would be a different society where we perhaps socialize goods, uh, have maybe a form of guaranteed income. That's a whole different debate for a different day. But as long as we all agree that we live in capitalism, we all agree that private property is something that has to be respected, then money that fr- provide for services not rendered have to be refunded. Why? Because the law, the airline cannot hold on to this as a and non-refundable cash advance, free of interest, mind okay, you. Okay, okay, Gabor. Gabor, we been, to- we've been we've been
0: on, on on Air Canada for a while now, and uh, they they have no friends. We we know that they have a lot of uh, a lot of uh, issues, in particular dealing with the pandemic right now. But I want to ask you directly, because Anthony brought it up. This is all about safety. What is it going to make you? What's going to make you feel safe to get on an airplane again?
1: I would need to do two things. I would like to see that everybody who gets on the plane is tested. I'm very much in support of what Anderson is saying, it's a very good approach. And I would like to see financial guarantees that if for whatever reason the flight doesn't take off, then I get back my money. I would also add that I would want to have a safety uh, guarantee that if somebody else is tested positive and they don't get on the plane because they're tested positive, they get back their money because I don't want people to hide their illness. Currently, the situation with refunds is dangerous, not only financially, but because it creates an incentive for people out of fear to maybe take a Tylenol if they have fever to somehow avoid showing the symptoms. At this time, the only viable solution would be slightest concerns. Here's your money back, sir. Get better. We'll have to fly you tomorrow.
0: Well, we'll see if that happens. Now, now, Carl, um, when I look at... uh... When I look at the, the industry and it's hoping to bounce back, we hear about uh, a, a V-shaped recovery or U U-shaped recovery. W- which do you see right now?
2: I think a U, quite a long U bottom. Yeah. Because until we have a vaccine, I don't think people want to fly, fly broadly. I, Anthony, I wish this testing you talk about existed. I don't think it does. Hopefully it will someday. But I don't think it's out there now uh, or it's too expensive. Because I'm flying to Reykjavik uh, next month, all being well, and I'm going to do a COVID-19 test in Montreal, fly down to Toronto, go to Reykjavik, and I'll have a test when I get to Reykjavik. So I'll just be extremely careful in those hours in between, and hopefully it won't be a problem. So I would wish uh, that I could know at the airport and go, Carl, go to the hospital, you have COVID-19, which I would. And I would give it, well, I wouldn't give them a kiss, because that would be entirely inappropriate, but I'd like to hug them. if I If they could tell me, you have the disease, go treat it, I'd go. Ah, thank you so much. So this is a this would be great if it existed the virus the vaccine when it exists. But I think in the meantime I'm going to fly to Reykjavik because I've looked at what people experts say and I feel comfortable with it. Now I don't want to be uh, you know sitting beside someone with big shoulders like Anthony you know side by side that I would feel uncomfortable with. So I would, uh, but my son will probably come with me, so I'll sit beside him so we can make sure that we're as a group In a bubble. In a bubble, a bit. Uh, If it was said, the whole plane is sold out, you are going to be beside someone, I might not get on the plane, and I would believe I would get a refund or saying, we'll give you a credit to fly sometime in the future. So that's maybe I'm just too risky, maybe I'm not Canadian enough, but I'm willing to do some of those things. I did it last week and I felt comfortable doing that, but I realized that's not the average conservative, more conservative Canadian. And say Levy. I have yeah. to say French in public, so I, that's, hope that I did that. that right. That's
0: fine. Now you, you had mentioned uh, you had mentioned earlier when we were talking that you did do the flight from from Montreal to Toronto.
2: Yeah, and I felt comfortable doing that. I read up on the research, talked to people at IATA, at WHO, some former students or senior people at both places, talked to them about it, uh, got their advice. Uh, so I felt comfortable that there was relatively small risk. So so it- Oh, sorry, go ahead, Anthony.
3: I was just going to 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 bring into the point. So there is the technology today, and the problem is like for for instance, in the Trump White House, they had this Abbott Labs test. Uh, Michael Mina published it. It was an op-ed in New York Times. It was July third. If, if for those that are interested in finding it, the problem, the reason why it's not adopted yet, is that. The technology exists today. We can we can we can do this test. Uh, they're claiming uh, at least for a dollar, basically printed on some cardboard, and you can get it. Mm-hmm. The problem with the PCR is that what they're what they're accustomed to is having uh, uh, the ability, you know, the analytical accuracy to identify the virus in, in in these samples. And so the PCR has been treated as the gold standard, that nasal swab. But what's interesting is that if you take the approach of these tests can still determine whether or not you have viral load. And the, the, the question is, it may not be accurate on day one, but if, if you take a regime where you're doing it multiple times, so like right now, if you haven't t- taken a COVID test, it's better to even say if you went every other day, or you know, I think of school kids or, or getting on an aircraft, take a test every single day. And if you are positive, well, stay home. Uh, call for the test uh, you know you know isolate yourself if you're still negative perhaps even if in the alternative is if you've got a little bit of an accuracy error maybe you don't catch it on day 1 but you catch it on day 2 because the viral load is is enough in your body then to trigger so i think that it's there and that's what i'm saying is if we can push government and science so like what we're talking about with health canada and approving these things if we can push them into those areas and saying that we all want the it's yes or it's no and sometimes we can't live with shades of gray and I think what we need to do is to understand that we can do something with shades of gray and we can still act and we'll be better off if we follow that path than, well, let's just do a coin flip right now. Because Ed, to your question, it's difficult. Uh, you know, this VFR visiting friends and relatives is what would typically Canadians do when they get on the aircraft. Sure, a portion of that is going to be business travel. And that's when businesses are going to move. This is where we've seen an uptick. But when you, when you think of that VFR, that visiting friends and relatives, it's going to be difficult and it's going to take a while. Uh, and until we, we open up even domestically our provincial borders to fellow Canadians, this is going to be a challenge.
0: Yeah, it will. Uh, gentlemen, I want to thank you all for uh, joining us this evening for Unpublished TV. As uh, we discussed uh, getting the airlines uh, resuming again, it'll probably be a slow slog, but uh, we're looking to uh, get that moving forward. Carl Moore. Joining us, he's an expert on the airline industry, associate professor at the Desertel Faculty of Management at McGill University. Gabor Lukacs, he is the president and founder of Air Passenger Rights. And Anthony Norieko is the president and CEO of Canadian Business Aviation Association. And thank you for joining us on Unpublished TV. Coming up next Monday, the return to school for students in September. What could possibly go wrong? Thanks for listening and thanks for watching. Unpublished TV, I'm Ed Hand.